Hey, good morning, everyone. Hey, uh, so this is our second week in a series called uh, Core. I just want to go back and revisit just what are the core values of the Christian faith? What are the core values in the life of this church? So it's great to see you today. Uh, there are a lot of people joining us uh, online, um, watching live stream from lake houses, homes, hospital beds. So we welcome you guys with us as well. Uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 5. I want to unpack a lot of John 5. And to get there, as you can see on the stage, I have some stuff set up. And, and um, so before I open up and dive deeper into John 5, just want to take you on a journey. Some of you are visual learners. Some of you aren't. But uh, I, I think most of you will be able to connect with this. I want to show you just for a moment the different ways that we eat food. I've yet to meet a person who doesn't like to eat food. They may not eat a lot, but, I mean, it's, it's a natural part of life, right? One way we eat food and we eat meals is that we sit down at a, uh, at a living room table, a dining room table. Maybe we go to restaurants and we sit down at a meal where the way we eat at certain restaurants is it comes out in phases, and you'll be there for a little while. Um, this is one of the best places for us to develop relationships, right? Uh, to sit down at a meal and... and to be at a place like when Casey and I go out uh, together or even with friends, we like to keep our cell phones off the table where there's discussion. When I'm eating with Casey, she likes to position ourselves at a restaurant to where I cannot see Sports Center on a TV, to where we are able to focus on one another. Uh, but it, growing up in my family, we couldn't do this every night of the week, but we tried to sit down at a table a few nights a week where we could eat a meal and try to enjoy some company. But that's not the only way we eat. Sometimes the way we eat, if you're like me, it's that you're in a car and I'm here at church and I have a meeting downtown and I have 30 minutes to grab a meal on my way downtown. So I run through a lot of times it's Chick-fil-A, all right, because it's Christian chicken. And that's how we do it. Um, do any of you crave Chick-fil-A on Sundays more than any other day of the week? You know? uh, and a lot of times this is how we do it. Now, I, I don't know if this is illegal or not. Maybe I should talk to Patrick or a cop about it. But I think eating and driving can be just as dangerous as any other kind of distraction. Because when I get a bite of a good tater tot from Chick-fil-A, like I, a party starts going off in my head. You know, I'm not, I'm not as focused. When I'm eating beef jerky on the road, which I've... I got pulled over one time. I was hitting about 77 on a seven, going uh, on a on an interstate, and and a cop pulled me over and he said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Man, I'm just cruising with my family, but I was enjoying some of this beef jerky." And he said, "Well, what kind is it?" And I said, "It's spicy beef jerky." He said, "That's my favorite kind." I said, "You want a piece?" And he took a piece and he let me go. Or I didn't give me a ticket. It was great. So, so I keep spicy beef jerky just in case this ever happens again. All right. Uh, but even when we're driving with the family, a lot of times, like when we're going into Dallas to, to see my family, to hang out, man, we stop at a place, and we don't stop to go in and sit down at a table. We got to get somewhere, but we need to eat a full meal, not just a snack. So we run through a drive through and then we get in the car, and I, I'm watching as Casey will, like, hand food back to the kids, and I'm like, I'm like, you know, feed me first before you feed them, and I'm really watching to see if Casey gets the bonus fry that's always in the bottom of a bag, you know? There's always that one fry that falls out. Another way we eat is um, TV trays. I'm pretty sure Jesus had TV trays, even though they didn't have TVs back then. All right. um, we used to eat this way sometimes as a family. Every once in a while, we had uh, a few TV trays in our house growing up. It didn't happen all the time, but sometimes my parents were like, hey, tonight let's watch a show while we eat a meal. And we would get out our TV trays, and we would sit down, and we would watch TGIF or... Uh, for a while, my family would sit around and watch Rescue 911. I don't know if you remember that show. And, and it was a way for us to, like, watch TV, but we're in the same room together. And, and it's a, one way to eat. Another way we eat is 
like this, all right? We got it. We, we work in office buildings or something, and there's always that snack bowl. Let me tell you something about snack bowls, because uh, some of the research I've done has showed if you walk by a snack bowl and you do not break your stride and you reach in and eat, it doesn't count as calories, all right? If you stop and eat, it's calories, all right? You got to start counting them. But I, I don't know if you work at a place where there's, and it may not be M&M's, but even at your house, you may have a snack bowl, a candy bowl, a, a, a bowl of fruit, and we walk by and we grab it, and it's another way we eat. And, and a, a fifth, and I'm sure we could add a lot more to it, but is that we have these delicacies. Uh, so um, I, I texted our staff yesterday, and I said, hey, are any of you going out uh, tonight, and could you bring me a piece of cheesecake for a sermon prop? And Mark Taylor said, I'm going to a wedding, and I'll bring you a piece of wedding cake to use as a sermon prop. And I thought, this is great. But then Mark left the wedding early uh, so before they cut the cake, which I was still counting on Mark to, like, slice a piece of cake before they cut it. Uh, but he, went, he said he was hungry, and he went to KFC, and as he was ordering his fried chicken, he said, do you have any cakes here? And they said, well, yeah, we have a small cake, so here it is. But I'm wondering, Mark was at his house last night. Stephanie isn't even home. Look at that. Like half the cake's gone. All right? So Mark enjoyed some last night or this morning for breakfast, something like that. But there are those certain kind of foods that we don't eat all the time, every once in a while. A couple of times a year, not all the time, a couple of times a year when Casey and I are on date nights, it always ends at the cheese, or a couple of times a year, it ends at the cheesecake corner. When we interviewed here, uh, we were taken to the Cheesecake Corner. It was then that Casey and I looked at each other and thought, we think God may be calling us to Memphis, all right? Like, this is really good. But there's some foods that you don't eat all the time, but every once in a while you do. All right, so does this make sense to you? Can you look up here and connect with some way that we eat food? And there may be some other ways you would add to this. All right, but here's the question some of your life groups are going to be talking about later on today. Here's a question that maybe you want to take to whatever lunch, whatever, however you eat lunch with family. But as you look up here, just the five ways I've showed you how we eat. Here's the question. When it comes to how you read the Bible, which one of these best describes your reading habits? All right, <clears throat> right now in 2017, which one of these best describes how you engage the Word of God? Is it like a dining table? where you sit down to savor and to take time and to get to know? Is it like, a, man, we've got to get from one point to another point, but we want to get the word in? Is it more like a TV tray where we're engaging the word, but there's also music on, maybe the TV on, distractions around us? Is it more like a snack where we're walking by quickly, but we want that verse that can encourage us throughout the day? So we're reaching for a verse. We're hurrying, reading one place that can encourage our hearts, can strengthen us. Is, it, is the word of God for you something that, hey, it doesn't happen all the time? But when you do engage in the word, it's life-giving to you. You love it, and you leave thinking, man, I need to do that more often. How do you read the Word of God? Now, you may be thinking right now that I'm going to preach this sermon in a way that's going to end, and by the end I'm going to say, hey, this is the way and the only way to read the Word. But what's true is like God shows up in all these ways. Because sometimes the best way to read the Word or how God wants to inspire a heart is, hey, I need something right here. I need like this snack. I need something to draw from. Now, to have something to draw from means you need to know the words. You can draw from the Word so I can have a verse I can stand on in a day. Um, uh, sometimes reading the Word, it is getting away and like really letting the Word of God have its way with you. There are times where what well, we have to give to God and what God wants of us is, hey, we're running from one place to the next place to the next. And hey, just take time you have just to sit with the Word. Even if it feels like fast food, let the Word have its way with you. 
but here's something that strikes me when I think about how Christians read the, read the Bible. Is that uh, it is possible whenever we eat any of these foods up here, or that could be represented up here, you, read, you, you can eat the food and love the food and want to go back to the food, yet never know who the chef is. Not know who the name of the person who served it up to you. And it's possible to read the Bible and even fall in love with the Bible without having a desire to know the author of the Bible. It's, it's possible to want a meal when it comes to Scripture, but not want to know the chef better. It's possible to think that God authored the Bible, but that God is no longer serving up fresh dishes. Not that God's adding on to the Bible, but there are times where God's bringing the Bible to new life in front of us. I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 5. Uh, because I want to talk today about how to read the Bible. I want people reading the Bible, yet I'm also convinced that how we read the Bible is just as important as what we read. Uh, And I know the phrase has been used by many Christians, uh, and it's a phrase that we want to be people of the book. And it's a phrase maybe some of you have used, and maybe you use it quite often. And and let me push back against the phrase just a little bit, and it's not that I'm calling the phrase heretical or that you shouldn't use the phrase, but more than you wanting to be a person of the book, I want you to be a person of God. Because I've known people who go in church almost every week, and they are people of the book, but they're not people of God. They're people who know a lot of the Bible, but they aren't craving the heart of God. And here's the problem with Jewish leaders, and we're going to read about them in John 5. One of their problems wasn't that they didn't love Scripture. It's that they loved Scripture too much. Uh, And let me talk a little more. Maybe that will make a little more sense, because I am not minimizing the beauty and power of Scripture this morning. I want to elevate it. But what I want to point to more than anything is that Scripture points to Jesus. Uh, So the Jewish leaders who opposed Jesus. It wasn't that they didn't love Scripture. It's that they loved it too much. Look in John chapter 5, verse 39. And then I'm going to backtrack from there. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify on my behalf. When Jesus taught in John 5 about Scripture... The way he taught about Scripture wasn't that Jesus points you to the Bible, it's that the Bible points you to Jesus. When Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in the book of John, in John 15 and 16, the way Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit's primary function is to point you to the greatness of Jesus. And when Jesus talks about Scripture, the way he talks about it is that it's not that Jesus is telling you to read your Bible so that you know the Word of God. It's Jesus saying, the Word of God testifies to me. The Word of God is always pointing people to the greatness of Jesus. Now, let's back up and see what even led Jesus to doing this teaching. The beginning of John chapter 5 and verse 1, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. There's this feast. And beginning in verse 3, here's what we read. In these... Uh, and this is, a, this is the pool of Siloam. It's the pool that means the house of flowing. And there by that pool, there were invalids. There were the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Can you imagine that? This guy had been by the pool and had been ill for 38 years. I'm not going to be able to say this much longer, but that is in a year and a half, it will be as long as I've been alive. 38 years, almost four decades. This guy's been ill. And Jesus saw him lying there. All right, you got to ask your question. You got to ask yourself, like, why is Jesus there? Like, what's Jesus doing? Hanging out in a place 
where there are paralyzed and the lame and people who were sick and ill. It's a church day. It's a day in the life of Jesus when good, faithful Jews went to church. They went to synagogue. Yet Jesus, and we don't know if he's just on his way to synagogue or coming home from synagogue, but Jesus ends up in this place where there are a lot of sick people. And it says Jesus looked at this man. Because when Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had been there a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? Isn't that a great question? Do you want to be made well? Um, I wonder how often Jesus asks that question today. Like, do you want to be made well? Because the more I hang out with some people who have been ill in any kind of way, emotionally ill, physically ill, it is possible for us to become addicted to our illness and that our illness, whatever it may be, has become our primary identity that we don't have a clue what being well would even look like. And even if wellness were to come to us, it may be a progress if I had to live into that because our illness has captivated us and captured us for so long. It's just become a part of who we are. So though the question seems like it may be an easier answer when Jesus says, do you want to be made well? For a lot of people, it's not an easy answer. It's, I think this would be a great text for a Celebrate Recovery, for a recovery group. Do you want to be made well? Because listen to this guy's response. His response is, uh, at once the man, uh, or when Jesus saw him lying there, he asked him this. The response of the guy is, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. So apparently this pool would have like this stirring in it. This, this stuff happens still in places like Calcutta today. Where there's sick people who hover around a certain pool and they think like these gods are stirring in the water. And that if they can get in, there, there's a healing that comes from it. And there, they're by this pool, and apparently, whenever there was a stirring, whoever got in first, there was a healing that would come into their life. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? And the person responds, this man responds with, yeah, but what happens is that I'm not quick enough to get into the water. And I wonder if Jesus, just for a moment, wanted to, like, stop and be like, dude, just stop. Like, it's a yes, no question. Do you want to be made well? Yes or no? Do you want to be made well? Church, do you want to be made well? Ask someone this week, like, do you want to be made well? There are times I've sat even with people who are struggling in their marriage, and the, they sit in my office or we're sitting over lunch, and I'll just say, do you want this marriage to work? Like, do you want the marriage to be made well? And there's like a 10-second delay. Do you want to be made well? And what Jesus does is he declares healing over his life, and the man picks up his mat, and he walks away. It's possible that this man, for 38 years, he had been ill. And when he's asked the question, do you want to be made well? He didn't really know how to respond, because it's possible for us to become prisoners of our own despair, to succumb to our illness, to where it becomes our identity. But what Jesus teaches us in John 5 is he cares about one person. As far as we know, this is a place full of a lot of sick people, and Jesus healed one. He healed the man. In John 3, Jesus had an encounter with Nicodemus, one man, because he cared for him. In John 4, Jesus had an encounter with one woman, a woman at the well, because he cared for her. In John 5, there's one man. He's sick. Jesus cares for him. In John chapter 5, verse 9, at once the man was made well. He took up his mat. He began to walk, and now that was the Sabbath. Anytime in the Gospels when you read about it being a Sabbath day, you should put little marks by it, a star, because fireworks are going off. Especially when Jesus heals on a Sabbath day, it's like that mic that hangs above the boxing rings before a boxing match is coming down and somebody's about to say, let's get ready to rumble because something's about to happen like that. 
And sure enough, it did. Look in verse 10 through 16. Here's, here's how it goes. So the Jews said to the man who had been cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, the man who made me well said to me, take up your mat and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said that to you? Take it up and walk. And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd that was there. And later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Uh, you can do as much studying about verse 14 as you want. This isn't a primary teaching of Jesus. He doesn't teach like this quite often. All right, but apparently Jesus is speaking into something in the guy's life. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And therefore the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. Here's what somewhat strikes me as strange. The guy who's healed doesn't know the name of the person who healed him. He jumped up, took his mat, he le- uh, <clears throat> without ever getting to know the healer. He's healed and he doesn't know the details of the person who healed him. And not only that, now the Jewish leaders aren't as excited. They, don't, they aren't excited about the healing. They're upset that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And that goes outside of how they read Scripture, how they interpreted Scripture. So the man who was healed doesn't know the healer. And the people who witnessed the healing are upset because a person's been healed. Because for Jewish leaders, they didn't really have a place for people who were healed outside of the boundaries they had set up for faith. They didn't have a place in community for them. All right, so maybe you're asking, or maybe you're not, but what does this have to do with the Bible? And I think this story has everything to do with the Bible and how we read it. Because to the Jewish leader, Jesus' actions in John chapter 5 were breaking Scripture. They had this idea of the confines of how we go about doing faith. And anytime Jesus was setting people free that went outside of their boundaries, it just threw them off. And for Jesus, Scripture and how he interpreted Scripture and lived Scripture was Scripture was about God setting the world free from bondage so that they could live and love God. And here's what angers me sometimes when I read Scripture is that uh, what really angers me is when there are acts of mercy, especially on the part of Jesus, that are met with suspicion and danger. Uh, Until I realize how sometimes God's acts of mercy throws me off and frustrates me too. When God's acts of mercy disrupt how I'm going to get from one appointment to the next, how God's acts of mercy may call me into a messy relationship or a messy situation, Let me show you five statements of Jesus. I would love for you to go home and read the rest of John 5 because from here on out in the gospel of John, or in John 5, Jesus and the Jewish leaders get into this argument with one another. And Jesus is trying to teach them and reveal to them the will of the Father, yet they go from wanting to persecute Jesus to wanting to kill Jesus. Let me just show you five statements. One is in verse 17. It says, Jesus answered them, my Father is still working and I also am working. Right after that is when it says that the Jewish leaders are trying to kill him. They don't just want to persecute him anymore. They want to kill him. Because Jesus is pointing to the works of God as works of God that set people free even on a Sabbath day. And he's also claiming God as his own father, which the Jewish leaders did not appreciate. What happened for them is what can often happen to us too, is we think that God sets up this structure and wants the church to play by those rules. And sometimes what happens is we fall in love with this structure that we think is church and how we're supposed to do church, and we expect God to work within the rules that fit our structure when God doesn't want to play by the church's rules. God wants the church to play by his rules. 
And God's rules aren't about you just functioning within a structure. It's living a life that's setting people free. For Jesus, interpretation of Scripture should be life-giving for someone's self, but also how they engage the world. If how you are reading the Bible isn't in some way leading to other people having life and experiencing life and getting a piece of good news, then you may need to change how you're reading the Bible. Because reading the Bible isn't just for your health, it's for the world's health. For Jesus to engage Scripture and live from Scripture was about setting the world free. It was mimicking the works of the Father. So in verse 19, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing on His own, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Uh, our, the, um, you may have no interest in golfing, whatever, but Phil, Mac- Phil Mickelson's been a great golfer for a couple of decades. And he's a lefty. But he does everything else right-handed. He writes right-handed, throws right-handed, kicks with his right foot, shaves right-handed. He does everything right-handed except play golf. And the reason why is he had a dad who played golf growing up. And his dad had a net in the backyard that he would hit golf balls into. And his dad was right-handed. And at the age of two, when Phil Mickelson started playing golf, he would go where he saw his dad swinging into a net, and he would stand to where he could see his dad, and he would mimic everything his dad did. So his dad was right-handed, so naturally he just became left-handed because he was watching every movement of his father, how he positioned his feet, how he came back with his arms, how he held the club with his hands trying to mimic everything his father did, and that's how he became a left-handed golfer. Jesus declares what he states is, I am watching the movements of my father, and what my father does is what I do. Ultimately, what Jesus is trying to teach him is that the purpose of God wasn't to set up this structure so that you fall in love with the structure, and it wasn't to give you scripture so that you only fell in love with scripture. It's to realize how scripture's like cultivating your heart to love God and to love his mission. Jesus is claiming, I do what I see my father do. In verse 21, Jesus says, Indeed, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever He wishes. It's not about giving knowledge or any other gift. It's that the way we engage and interpret Scripture is life-giving. Verse 24, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life, it does not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. It's His emphasis on His own word. Jesus is trying to bring Scripture to life. And a way to understand Scripture is pointing people to himself. Scripture is testifying that Jesus is true. And it's what Jesus builds on in verse 36. I have a testimony that is greater than John, John the Baptist, that the works that the Father has given me to complete, the very works that I am doing, testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me is himself testified on my behalf. And you have, heard, uh, you have never heard his voice or seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you because you do not believe him who has sent me. And that's where Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's they that testify on Jesus' behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Man, I, has that been true in your life ever? I mean, maybe you grew up in a tradition where there was such a focus on Bible reading and being people of the Word that it was through knowing the Word and how much we knew and having the answers that we thought that is what gained eternal life for us. 
when this statement of Jesus is it's through Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. It's reading scripture so your affections grow for Jesus. I think some of the best questions for you to ask when you're reading anything in the Bible, how is it good news? What is the good news it declares? How does it make much of Jesus? How is it pointing to Jesus? Because here's the deal. When we eat any food, you know what I do a lot of times when I eat a great meal? Is I don't keep it to myself. Now, I'm not promoting or even asking you to keep posting breakfast, lunch, and dinner pictures of your food. Because a lot of times it seems like what we do, right? But when I eat a great meal, I want people to know about it. If there's a restaurant that I eat at that's really good, I want you to go. If there's a food that food I ate that was so tasty, I, I would encourage you to go get it. When we engage the Word of God and it comes to life, it's not just for ourselves. It's to share with the world because we want them to be set free too. This may be a day for you that I remember six or seven years ago, I just when people would ask, Josh, what can we pray for you right now? The last two to three years, my response to that question has been, I want you to pray for God to protect my joy, not that it's not there. I just know Satan wants to rob me of it. Protect my joy and that I'll live from a place of hope. Six or seven years ago, when people asked, what can I pray for? My response was to give me an, an, like this overwhelming hunger for the word of God and how it points me to Jesus. I, I didn't want to get so caught up in the works of ministry that I was engaging the things that grow my affections for the Lord. And this may be a day for you where you realize that the way you engage Scripture can't sustain you very long. It can't cultivate a deep hunger for God. You need a deeper love for how Scripture points you to Jesus. And this may be a day that when we set up our prayer stations in a moment and we have people for prayer, that you go and all you need to say is, I want a deeper hunger for the things of God. I want God to bring Scripture to me and invite me into Scripture so I can learn more about Jesus. And let someone pray over you, asking for that hunger to be developed in you. So for those who are praying this morning, for our shepherds who are receiving people, will you go to your places so we can see where you are this morning and where we're going? And we invite you in this moment, we're going to sing a couple of songs, invite you to go to any of these places for prayer, to share how you want a deeper hunger for God in your life. If there's something you want to bring in front of this church, or if there's someone here who wants to enter into a relationship with Jesus today, to be baptized into Christ, to confess Him as Lord, come and join me up front and Dewey or... Uh, Wayne will be up here to receive you. Let's stand together and let's sing a couple of songs.